Hello, people, and welcome to the People Building Podcast. Today, I'm joined by the amazing Michael Hurst, who has the most amazing story of recovery to share with us. Michael has a history of working in law enforcement. So he has a number of stories to share from that background. And that means that there are some pretty hefty trigger warnings for today's show. There is talk around experiences of helping people with suicidal ideation, helping families who have had family members pass away by suicide um, and coming into scenes where a suicide has taken place. So if any of those sorts of subject areas are delicate for you, this may not be the podcast for you to watch or listen to today. As I mentioned, Michael has a history of law enforcement, so you can also expect some conversation around murder, domestic violence, living with PTSD after all of that stuff, um, as well as his experiences in helping people who have been victims of rape and sexual assault. So with all of that being said, let me tell you that Michael's reasons for moving into a law enforcement career really come from a positive rebellion. So he came from a slightly chaotic family background and he rebelled against all of that in the most positive and helpful way by becoming a police officer. So I think that there was an aspect of making peace with his own childhood by way of going into that particular career. Now, the other thing that's interesting about a career choice like that is not just rebelling against the perhaps chaotic and law-breaking family, but also it's the kind of career where you almost create another family. You will hear him speak about his colleagues in law enforcement as his brotherhood. Um, And so as well as his job being very tangled up with his identity, it was also an underpinning factor in what enabled him to feel a sense of connection, love and connection with other people as well. And it gave him an enormous sense of purpose. So plot twist, um, this is not a career that lasts forever for Michael. It does, however, during the time that he's there, give him an experience of dealing with very intense situations, which I'm sure helped him to develop some grit and resilience that undoubtedly came in helpful for his own life experiences that were going to be coming up in the future. And so the main message that I will share with you at this stage is that life can change in an instant. I will hop back here at the other side of the interview with Michael to share my final thoughts with you. But for now, please sit back and enjoy the interview with the amazing Michael Hurst. Hello and welcome everybody today. I'm joined by the wonderful Michael Hurst, who I was very fortunate to come to know as a result of speaking on his 
fantastic show um just a couple of weeks ago i think it was wasn't it um and we got yeah we got to know each other then so uh as part of the conversation that i had with michael um he was revealing little snippets about himself and his own life and i was thinking he sounds like someone that needs to come on my show he sounds like a cool guy so i'm very honored to have you here today thank you for joining me absolutely i'm honored to be here as well and thank you for calling me cool now that can't be the first time i'm i'm quite sure of it <laughs> i should put that in my bio and a really cool guy <laughs> <laughs> all right so on that note then if you were giving me your bio what would it sound like what would you say well, my name is Michael Hurst, and I live in the uh, Phoenix, Arizona area. Uh, I'm a retired police sergeant. I was injured in the line of duty uh, a number of years ago. I was told I would uh, be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life and never walk again. And uh, I walked my daughter down the aisle, and uh, my wheelchair sits in the garage um, collecting dust. And uh, I like to help people move forward in a very positive way. And I do that now through reinventing my purpose and uh, I host a podcast uh, called One More Thing Before You Go. And uh, we talk about triumph over tragedy stories and moving people forward in a positive way like I did. Amazing. I love that. So there's so many things. There's so many different rabbit holes that I'm just dying to jump down. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to um, earlier life for you. Did you always know that you were going to be a policeman when you grew up, that you're going to work in law enforcement? Absolutely. Oh, I need to say really quick, I am a husband of 33 years as of the 23rd of this month, and I have two oh, wonderful congrats. daughters. Two wonderful daughters. I'm not used to being on this side of the mic. <laughs> <laughs> and you um, have to mention the fam because otherwise they will not be happy that they exactly. got missed off. Exactly, right? exactly. Uh, <laughs> yes, I had always wanted to be a police officer. I grew up in a very dysfunctional family. And uh, I think my goal in life at that time was to uh, kind of get out of that situation and help other people within that situation. I felt that I could contribute to society. So when I graduated high school uh, here, I um, went on to a community college. Uh, and when I went to community college, I majored in criminal justice. My objective was to become a police officer and okay. uh, protect and serve. So it, it's a um, probably not uncommon, but to me quite a curious motivation for becoming a police officer coming from a dysfunctional family i'm sure that, that you're not the first person to come from a dysfunctional family and to mm -hmm. say you know what i'm going to clean these streets up um, and to and go in a different direction to the one that you came from what was that like for your family how did they process your it's kind of a rebellion right you know you're rebelling in in a good way you're rebelling against what they were or who, how they were, um, and uh, and you know setting up your own life in a very different way. So, how did your family take to that? You know, it, it's really interesting. Um, my father died when I was uh, 17 years old, so I grew up uh, with a, a, a single parent, a mm -hmm. single mother who was trying to raise two, uh, three kids, actually, and. Um, so from that environment, um, you know, I can't tell you what the reflection is with my father. I know my father wanted me to be a writer like he was. Okay. So uh, after I made the decision uh, when I was like a 14 or 15 years old, 
I made the decision to become a police officer and go into law enforcement. Mm -hmm. You know, most of their situation was, why would you want to do something stupid like that? Um, from that perspective, and to me, that wasn't uh, stupid because I felt that, uh, again, in observing, I was a middle child, had an older, mm -hmm. I have an older sister, not had, let me take that back from the universe. I have an yeah. older sister and I have a younger brother. And um, okay. my, both my parents were alcoholics. Um, right. My mother eventually married somebody that kind of uh, helped her through that process, but it took her a long time to get to that point. Uh, okay. The alcoholism did take my father's life. So um, when I had uh, uh, kind of was adamant about the fact that I wanted to get into law enforcement, uh, I actually, one of my major prospects um, was DUI enforcement. Right. right. You know, yeah. and I took over a team and worked with a team uh, that we that specifically just did that. And I felt that was an opportunity for me to kind of um, get in control of my what my childhood was. Uh, yes. I also worked domestic violence. Um, I chose right. both of those details based upon that. So when when I went into both of those arenas, um, my family, they, my mother was proud of me. You know, yeah. the rest of my family were kind of iffy because mm -hmm. we had, I've got like, a, what, eight uncles and aunts okay. and a multitude of cousins. You could probably, you know, I couldn't count them all yeah. <laughs> because of that big of a family. But uh, there's a lot of them were involved in, um, in, I'm giving away secrets here. A lot of them were, were involved in, unfortunately, alcoholism and drug abuse and and still continue. Some of those proportions of the family still continue and struggle with that with their kids and their grandkids um, because it kind of perpetuates. Um, the majority of family were okay with me being a cop. Yep. Um, my mother eventually came around to being proud of me for taking that profession instead of becoming a writer, um, which I have come about we'll talk about that in a little bit yes, back to yes. that um ironically enough but uh I, I was i was supported more by my sister and my brother-in-law okay i want to be really particular yeah, honest yeah. Yeah, with yeah, that yeah. my mother still felt that i was uh kind of not betraying the family mm -hmm. but in in a sense like you had said yeah. earlier uh yeah. my sister and my brother-in-law um he was from rome and yeah. uh you know he kind of took over the big brother role when I lost my dad and uh, he himself said, you know, I'm really proud for you taking this opportunity. And that gave me uh, more purpose for what I was doing and to really kind of delve into that career. I loved my career. Yeah. I was a Sergeant. I worked my way up to Sergeant. I was on route to taking a Lieutenant's test and I kind of okay. got cut short. So, yeah. you know, we can talk about that when, when you're ready, but it, it got cut short. What do you think your dad would have thought? You know, from my father's perspective, um, you know, my father tried to be a good father and, uh, you know, circumstances didn't allow that. And um, he is a good individual. He just had uh, an issue with uh, uh, a substance that took control of his life more than he could take control of it. And I understand that years later, and, and especially working with a DUI task force and understanding the elements of alcoholism and the, uh, yeah. what it does to you and how it does to you and the effects of it and everything. You learn all that when you specialize in something like that yeah, in yeah. DUI enforcement. Um, I, I think that um, he would be proud of 
I would hope that he would be proud of me of what I've done and what I've contributed back to society because I, in my career, I've been able to make some very positive impact on people's lives in, yeah. um, even in the DUI enforcement area because people said, Joe, I made a mistake and, and now I realize the mistake I made and you know, yeah. uh, you put me on a better path. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think from that perspective, he would be, uh, he'd be proud. Yeah. Okay. That's really cool. And um, I'm guessing as well, because you were so successful in your career, uh, it would be very difficult for people to not see that you had pride in what you were doing and for them to subsequently feel proud of you for the things that you achieved. I remember you saying back when you were, uh, I was on your show um, that at, you know, you'd been responsible for catching some pretty bad, bad guys at some stage as well. I loved catching bad guys. <laughs> I, uh, I, yes, I was uh, part of a team that caught uh, two of America's most wanted. Um, and we did that, you know, different time periods, of course. Yeah. Uh, I got to be on details that protected the two presidents of the United States, wow. uh, which I thought was, uh, well, actually, yeah, two presidents of the United States and yeah. uh, the prime minister of Japan. So, you know, I had uh, I had some kudos on, on many aspects because I was chosen for that. Those kind of details um, you, you're picked for, you, you know, you don't. You know, say, hey, hey, give me, give me, give me. I want this. I want this. I want this. And, you know, you have to earn it and kind of a thing. So, uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed my career. Uh, I was able to, like I said, make a positive impact on on many people. I, I have, you know, I'm not bragging. I'm just proud of the fact that I was able to talk some people out of suicide and put them wow. on a, a new life path. And uh, I even received a cards from uh, felons that said, thank you for not treating me like a felon and you helped me change my life and things like yeah. that. So, you know, that, that to me showed that, uh, as I developed my law enforcement career, it was the right path for me and 100%. that my decision was correct. Yeah. And that, uh, I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do, change people's lives, protect yes. and serve. You know, um, when I worked at the uh, domestic violence task force for four years it was very difficult um, but we, notwithstanding that any domestic violence is is good, yeah. but we worked the the worst of the worst. We worked the top level bad people right. that did this, both men and women, yeah. um, who were involved in domestic violence and serial domestic violence and right. just cases that would, if they really got onto the public, um, you know we horrific for some individuals having to think about what these people went through. Yeah. Um, you know, that in itself uh, allowed me the opportunity to take people out of those situations, both women, men, and children, yeah. so that it gave them uh, a new life, you know, a different path on their life. Yeah. So from that perspective, yeah, I really, uh, I enjoyed what I'm doing. I miss being a cop. I, you know, people ask me, why Why were you a cop? Why do you want to be a cop? Why do you want to be a police officer? And, you know, it's, it's it, and I can say this for a lot of my brotherhood because they have stuck with me through my journey, through my illness and through my surgeries and everything else. Yeah. Uh, it's a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And uh, it's who we are. It's not just a job. It's not a profession. It's who we are. Um, you know, just like doctors, it's who they are. A nurse, it's who they are. You know, I would never be a brain surgeon i i don't have any inclination to, to open somebody's head up and start exploring all that and pressing buttons you know i don't want to do that 
but there's other people that don't want to, you know, stand in front of everybody else that's running that way and protecting them from that danger. Yeah. So it, 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 it was, it, and, and I say this because obviously we're going to talk about reinventing ourselves and reinventing our purpose. It, in my life, I understood that that was my purpose. That's yeah. me. That's part of me. It's still part of yeah. me. Um, you know, my wife can tell you, we will sit and watch cop shows and I'm like, wait a minute, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, they're doing that wrong. I'm that annoying person when I watch shows with psychologists in it and, <laughs> and I sit there going, actually, that's not very ethical, is it? <laughs> oh, exactly. It's like, they, no, no, let me, let me, give me a phone number. <laughs> call these people up and say, no, set you straight here. Um, <laughs> But it's who we are, you know, it's who I was yeah. and who, who I am still inside. I still search, seek for the justice. I still, you know, root for the, the underdog. I still, you know, want to take uh, participate in, you know, if I see somebody that's being um, um, bullied, you know, I take a proactive approach to that. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of one of those things that's who I am and who, who I, who I, that's my identity. Yeah. That was, and, and that was my identity more so than that. Sure. So I'm curious about the with some of those um, situations that you were working in, some of those would have got really intense. How did you take care of yourself through that? When you came home, were you good at leaving it all behind? You know, if I was if I was going to ask your wife about this <laughs> and say, what was he like after a really bad day? Um, what do you think she would say? Were you quite were you quite good at managing? Because it must have some emotional toil on you, right? Working in it some does. of those. In any situation, especially in uh, emergency service personnel, whether it be police officer, yeah. firefighter, EMT, those situations that are you have instantaneous moments of adrenaline. And then mm -hmm. uh, you come back down and then it's instantaneous adrenaline again. This And this is yeah. during your whole shift, not mm -hmm. every day, but quite a, quite a few times. Uh, you have situations that you come into that you see the worst people in society. And I, and I don't mean that as in detrimental. I mean, you see people at their lowest and at their worst. And you see the best people at their lowest and their worst. So there is no defining, this only happens to people that live on the street. This only happens to, to you know, somebody that's in a dysfunctional family. This happens whether you're rich, you're poor, you're old, you're black, you're white, you're Asian, it does not matter. Um, you walk into situations that you see that, you experience that, you participate in that environment. So yes, sometimes it is difficult and sometimes you, um, you try not to bring it home because, you know, at the time that I was a police officer and, and married my wife, I, I had been in law enforcement uh, when I married my wife. So it's not like I married my wife and then I became a cop. I was a cop before I married my wife. Um, you know, you become, when you get a family in this particular situation, you become more aware. In the old, I say the old days, <laughs> in the beginning, it, one of those things where I was single. So, you know, I had this big ass on my chest and, you know, nothing could stop me. And, you know, it was, it was exciting and, and it didn't matter if I had the ups and downs and adrenalines, it was great. We could all talk about it. And, you know, afterwards we'd go out and, and either, you know, um, uh, have a drink or, you know, you do something to kind of relieve the stress. Sure. That perspective. 
When you get a family, it's a little bit different because you can't always do that, but you don't want to bring that home to your family. You don't want to bring home, you know, the, I, without being brash, I had um, uh, five suicides during one holiday season between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day uh, that we had to investigate. So that one was really, really tough for me. And I only bring that up because typically I don't, didn't bring home you know, my wife could tell if I was angry, upset, or, you know, there were certain aspects that I would discuss with her that I would not discuss with my kids. Um, just be, And she understood, luckily. I'm very grateful that she understood, and she allowed me to express it because the key is communication. Yeah. The key is being able to talk about it, but not overly talk about it because and when I say this, it's going to sound strange, but you know, the, the average individual does not experience what a law enforcement officer or a firefighter or an EMT experiences. Yeah. So you can't come home and talk about, for example, the five suicides. I can't go into detail about each one of them because that would just be devastating to somebody's psyche. Just often yes. think about, well, you know, but she allowed me to be able to discuss it in certain situations. On that particular holiday uh, year, it was very difficult for me because I had to knock on people's doors and say, and they're going, oh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And here, you know, what are you, how's your day going? And you had to say, I'm sorry, can you please step outside? Yeah. And then try to display that devastating news. Mm -hmm. And then have to try to help them manage it and then yeah. hold that inside because... You know, you 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 can't cry in front of them. You have to be strong for them because they need somebody to be strong for them. You know, but if you're an empathetic and compassionate person, compassionate person, you need to, you you need to, yeah, you have to. So luckily, I have a, a partner that allowed me to do that. I was yeah. able to come home, mm. and I was able to kind of cry. I was able to kind of let it out a little bit. Um, not in every circumstance. You know, there were times I come home from a fight. Or, you know, we got into a, a fight and I was injured mm -hmm. and I come home and, you know, of course, my wife, every day that I went to work, she had to think about, are you coming home? Mm -hmm. So it's difficult on the other side of it Yeah. Um, from there. So we, we tried to keep a line of communication open and uh, that communication sometimes was um, long. Sometimes it was very short, depending upon the circumstance. So we manage it that way. We manage it with watching uh, great movies and TV and spending time together and loving my kids and making sure that I was a father that was present, making yeah. sure that I participated in my kids' lives no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, what taking them to dance and going to their plays and their dance recitals and you know things like this. We became very active. So that's yeah. how I managed it. Um, yeah. I was able to be actively participating in my family's life, but at the yeah. same time, if I came home angry, because there were times that I did, um, you know, I was able, she let me blow steam off. Yeah. And um, if I came home sad, she let me cry. Yeah, you were very fortunate, really, to have the support there that you had whilst you did that job. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that. And and realistically, anybody, you know, most, in, 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 in at least here, um, you know, I try to go to a therapist. I've got PTSD. Yeah. I can admit it because of the situations that I had gone into that, you know, I see, I had a career that was almost 17 years old, mm -hmm. you know, and it, and I say 17 years old, 
that's probably the wrong terminology. <laughs> it makes it that, it's interesting because it makes it sound like it was your baby. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. It was dear to my heart, you know, and, and it, um, you know, you see a lot and you experience a lot during that time period. And, you know, I see um, every face that uh, of every suicide victim that I had gone to, everybody that was, uh, uh, I see the murder victim. I see the assault victims. I still see the um, individuals that uh, unattended deaths that, you know, these people died alone. And, um, you know, they, they didn't know one person. He died two weeks. They didn't know he was deceased. And that was another Christmas. And um, uh, always around a holiday. And it 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 is um, uh, the people that you look in their eyes and you're trying to resuscitate them and you see the desperation and you can't, there's nothing more that you can do, but you see the desperation in the riot, help me, is difficult for us to go to a, a standard therapist. I tried that. And, um, you know, I started releasing and said, well, just go ahead and tell me about it. Just speak it, talk it out. I started to, and he went, he stopped. Wow. He says, I'm sorry. Um, I'm not the right therapist for you. Yeah. Kind of situation. Uh, now, at least in the environment now, law enforcement and fire and EMTs, there has been recognized um, yeah. because PTSD is, is typically associated with, uh, you think of combat veterans that oh, suffer from PTSD, but yeah. so do individuals like us. I, I was hit by a vehicle. Um, that's what ended my career. I still have PTSD about that. Um, every time I go through one of my eight operations, I stopped and thought about it reflected back on what started it in the first place. Yeah. Um, you, in this environment today, luckily, uh, they have facilities and they have therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists that specifically deal with law enforcement, firefighters, yeah. EMTs, nurses, doctors, that um, we have the opportunity to go have conversations with these people now that we can speak freely. Mm -hmm. And we and I have a show on uh, one on my podcast actually where uh, this is Warrior Warriors for Warriors, and um, there's a facility that specifically is dedicated to uh, law enforcement personnel and firefighting personnel and EMTs and in the whole EMS saying where well, you can come and comfortably open up about that because you you can't come home and tell your wife well you know if I could speak honestly. You can't come home and tell your wife, well, uh, what happened at work today? Well, I came home and I had to take somebody down from a tree that had hung themselves and they, you know, they'd been there all night and it yeah. put that in detail. Yeah. You just can't do that because that's not fair to your partner, whoever it yeah. happens to be your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whoever it happens to be, you, it's not fair to yeah. that person to discuss that. But at the same time, when you hold it in, yeah, and, and, and it builds up inside you so much. That's why you see cops and firefighters and so forth. You see them as alcoholics. You see them turn to alcohol. You see yeah. them, especially after they retire, you yeah. see them turn to alcohol. You find that uh, they lose their purpose too. This is what I did for 20, 30 years. And now I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it, it puts them on a different path, which I know that we're going to talk about in a minute about reinventing ourselves. Yes. But it, um, it the key to this whole this whole managing mental health in regard to EMS 
And anybody that's suffered any kind of PTSD, no matter what it is, from a domestic violence situation, from you know a traumatic event that took place in your life, and that's the key word to it, as you know, post-traumatic yeah. stress is based upon traumatic trauma, traumatic incident that took place in your life that has a negative effect on you and not allowing you to move forward or manage or cope your mental health in such a, a way that is positive and it keeps you down in a in a lower level where you need to be working is communication yeah and communication helped me um overcome what i've been through and have supported me in order for me to reinvent my life and my life purpose yeah so it, it was a long career um and you will have had such a massive range of experiences What's something that you look back on now, maybe a specific time or incident that brings you the most pride or the most happiness? You know, I have many of them, so I don't know if I can pinpoint one in particular. Um, like I said, I've had people that have uh, come to me after I talked about a suicide and said, thank you, you you." You put me on the right path. I've had individuals that uh, I've arrested that um, when I when I got in the middle of trying to arrest somebody and we were in the middle of a fight on the ground, yeah. this person that I had uh, arrested a number of years, a couple of years prior to that, that um, I sat down and talked with him after I arrested him because I had dealings with him over and over again. We knew each other by name. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> I, I was... Um, I was in the middle of, we were trying to arrest this person that was on methamphetamine, which is when somebody's on meth, yeah, they are super strong, number one. Yep. They, they don't listen, number two. Um, yeah. you know, They're a different and, animal, right? Absolutely different animal. And we're trying, we're trying to get a hold of this person. And um, we're in the doorway of a bar, believe it or not. And uh, the Mike, this guy saw it happen, jumped down, grabbed the guy and pulled him back and just wrapped his arms around him, his legs around him and said, Sarge, go ahead and handcuff him. It, it, you know, and that to me showed that I had made a positive impact on Mike's life yeah. enough for that when I was in trouble, he came yeah. back and helped me. Wow. That's amazing. And what was your involvement with um, the America's most wanted cases? You know, that that's really interesting. We, um, we had received a phone call. Uh, how much detail am I allowed to go into in this? As much as you're comfortable okay. with, yeah. Um, basically, we received a, a call, a 911 call, in regard to a woman that uh, had um, said she, she had just passed uh, an individual. She was on vacation in our city and had said that she just walked by this individual that was a serial rapist that uh, had uh, kidnapped her, held her, for about nine days and repeatedly sexually assaulted her and um, attempted to uh, murder her. Okay. And uh, she was able to escape. So yes. um, obviously she would know this individual very, yeah. you know, uh, personally enough to know that this is him. This is yes. not just somebody that looks like him. This is yeah. not somebody that, yeah. so she called and said, this is him. So we looked it up, ran it through uh, NCIS, which is the National Crime Information System here. Uh -huh. And it came back as uh, he was uh, like number eight on America's Most Wanted based upon the fact that he was a serial 
uh, serial rapist and one that uh, his, his method of operation was to kidnap uh, a woman and then hold her for three, four, five, six, seven, eight days and wow. just repeatedly sexually assault them. Um, so when we got that uh, phone call, uh, luckily we were in the area. Um, yep. So three units, we converged together and uh, my lieutenant, myself and um, uh, two other officers were able to uh, enact a plan that he was in an arcade area that is open. Um, um, I won't say play area, but it's a, it had shops and uh, okay. like a little pavilion area. And yep. in the center of it, they had uh, like an arcade for kids on one side and you had rock shop and a, you know, a restaurant and things like this. So we had to be very discreet in, yep. in what we were doing because of what, who were there and what was around yep. there. Were you so, in plain clothes or? No, we were in uniform. Um, you were in uniform. Because, yeah, so we were just happy to be in uniform. And uh, we were, it was, we say we got lucky because the two of us, two units were in the area in the right place at the right time. So we were able to get eyes on the guy and then kind of keep an eye on him until the other two units showed up. And one of them was a lieutenant and myself as a sergeant and then the you know, two other officers. And we kind of uh, converged on this, made a plan of action, converged on him and uh, basically took him without incident, um, you know, in the middle of this crowded area and were able to uh, bring him in and uh, obviously took his name off the most wanted list because they yeah. were able to, and, it, and she had been here from New Mexico. So wow. uh, he had been what lost. What a brave lady. To, yeah, for that yeah. woman to have uh, seen him and have the confidence to follow that up. Yeah, she, she did. Seen- and the fact that she did, she came in and because we had to ask her to come in for sure. And uh, we have, obviously we have rooms with two-way mirrors and things like that. Yes. But I mean, that's on TV. So I'm not giving away any secrets. Sure, the lineup. <laughs> yeah, you can watch any TV show. You'll see two-way mirrors. And, um, you know, and she came in and obviously she was still very traumatized by the whole situation. But, you know, she came in and said, yes, that is the guy. That's the individual. And, uh, um, you know, it was it felt good, you know, that we were able to take this this. I have another name for him, but we'll call him an individual off, yeah. uh, <laughs> off the street. Yeah. Um, you know, that worked. And then the other one, uh, this this also was kind of a, uh, we had a, uh, a report. Um, there had been a national, um, a national bulletin for this individual. And uh, we got a report that somebody saw him and uh, he had kidnapped a, a 15-year-old girl wow. and uh from virginia believe it or not we were in colorado yep. and uh, said that uh, they saw them in a motel that said i thought i'm sure sure i saw this person in this motel with this girl and uh so we basically again it was part of a task force at that time and it was a multi-agency task force that involved a member of the fbi member of the police department members of the police department member of the sheriff's department uh so it was a multi-agency but uh i was a sergeant so i got to be in charge which was really cool that's part. I am a cool guy. See, <laughs> see. <laughs> uh, so uh, we made a neat little plan of action, and um, I won't give all the secrets away. But basically, we set it up so that uh, um, we allegedly ran into his car in the parking lot, and uh, you know we needed him to come out and kind of square that away. And it took a little bit of coaxing to get him out, but we finally got him out the door. And when we got him out the door, we were able to take him into custody as well. And 
this 15 year old that he had uh, kidnapped from Virginia. Uh, we were able to free her as well. And, yeah. um, you know, she was very traumatized because this had been like 10 days he had her actually cross country. So, yeah, both of those were, that, those were some very significant highlights of my career that I'm very proud of in regard to. Yeah, amazing. So you weren't planning on leaving law enforcement anytime soon. I was not. Um, I say I was getting ready, preparing for the uh, preparing for the lieutenant's test, and uh, just like the, my colleagues now, most of them went up the line and uh, went on to be lieutenants and commanders and chiefs and commanders and you know uh, sheriffs. Actually, uh, one of them I used to work with is uh, two of them actually are sheriffs uh, within yeah. Colorado still. Um, and I worked with them when I was a deputy because I was started my career as a deputy sheriff, and then I moved into the city yeah. police department. Okay. Um, I, I was not, uh, you know, again, my intention was to continue my career up the line uh, and eventually become a, a chief, assistant chief, or, you know, retire as a commander or something along that line. And uh, I had, had a call and uh, uh, two guys, two of my guys had a guy backed up on somebody's property. And uh, the individual uh, would ref was refusing to exit the vehicle, was refusing to provide uh, 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 driver's license information and so forth. And um, this, uh, they called for sergeant. So yeah. I showed up and as a sergeant and I had that big S on my chest still, not yeah. just for a sergeant, but I'm Superman. <laughs> um, I stepped out uh, uh, in front of my car, which is a big no-no. So any law enforcement people out there that are listening to this, take yeah. this as a lesson learned. I wasn't thinking clearly, and instead of walking behind my car, I walked in front of my patrol vehicle, which was parked in front of his vehicle. The other right. two cars were to the side, and yeah. uh, as I, because we didn't want him to, to get out, um, yeah. and uh, he uh, floored it and he pinned me between his vehicle and my patrol car, um, and then uh, backed up, tried to run me over again, pushed my patrol car out of the way, and then uh, took off down the road. He got about a mile down the road before the guys caught him. There was a significant damage to the front end of his car and so yeah. forth. So he was, wasn't able to get very far, very fast. Um, they took him into custody. And uh, basically, I had injuries that uh, that uh, needed attention to. Yes. And uh, long story short, because it goes into a lot more than that. But long story short, basically, I uh, because of those injuries, I developed rheumatoid arthritis. Right. And, uh, and it kind of went very rampant. And it's not in my... DNA rheumatoid is not so it was kind of weird it took a long time to figure out yeah. what was going on okay um it uh took such a toll and then the damage to my knees and things like that that uh I was uh basically told that uh, I would have to leave the police department so um you know I you know the... when the accident happened that that was the beginning of the end or did you genuinely think at that time this is a problem. I'm going to need a few weeks to get better. Um, I genuinely thought that uh, everything was going to be hunky-dory, actually. And, uh, you know, uh, just like, look, I, I, I've, I've gone to the hospital for uh, knee injuries before. I had to have cortisone shots for, uh, I got a knife cut on my face right here underneath my eye. You probably can't see the scar anymore, but I had to have stitches there. I got, I broke my fingers. I broke two fingers while I was arresting a, a guy for um, uh, stealing. He was, uh, we arrested him for auto theft. 
and mm-hmm. he didn't want to be arrested and he snapped to my fingers. We still arrested him, took him to jail, then went to the hospital with my fingers taped together. Um, I thought it was going to be like the same thing. Yeah. You know, he just, you just had a bad day. He got banged up a little yeah. bit and, yeah. you know, we just kind of moved forward. Well, I progressively started getting worse and um, it got to a point where, you know, I really wasn't able to effectively do my job. And, you know, um, at the time, uh, it was very difficult to make that decision that yeah. I was going to have to leave the police department. So uh, it was after discussions with my wife and my kids and, you know, my family, basically, and they had the support of that and uh, went in and talked to the chief and the lieutenant and, you know, um, the other sergeants and, you know, everybody. And, uh, yeah. you know, we just kind of said, yeah. And, and they, you know, I had to go through a process in order to get that done. So I had to go to see five different doctors uh, wow. Four doctors and then a guy that uh, one doctor that kind of looks at everything they present yep. and uh, says yes or no. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree with these four doctors or no, I don't agree with these four doctors uh, in order to get the uh, disability for occupational disability. And yeah. um, I had four doctors, including the fifth one that var- validated this, said uh, the, you're going to be in a wheelchair uh, the rest of your life pretty soon. Right. And um, it, uh, I look back, I'm trying not to be emotional. It um, was a devastating blow to me because as I said earlier in the conversation, that's who I was. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's who I was. That was my job. That was, I, you know, my, my extended family were law enforcement and firefighters mm-hmm. and EMTs. That's my extended family. Yeah, yeah. And I, I felt that. that I was going to let people down. Uh-huh. I had a team of individuals that I led as a sergeant. I had a team. Um, I don't know if you know the hierarchy of, of like the police department or military, but sergeants have a team. You have a sergeant, you have, ma- you know, like and in my case, our case, we have sergeants, we have master patrolmen, we have corp, you know, like a corporal type situation. And so you have a three stripe, two stripe, one stripe, you have a lieutenant. Um, that's your team. The lieutenant yeah. is sits at the desk and the sergeant is the supervisor in the street. And then below you, you've got your corporals, your, your uh, master patrolman, then you get your regular officers. And the sergeant, you have like, you know, you have each sergeant assigned um, to a different team, lieutenants, then that team's assigned to a lieutenant, et cetera. So I felt that was letting all these people down, you know. What was the bigger blow? Was it losing the job or was it being told that you would lose your mobility? Um, that's an interesting question, actually, because I never thought about it from that perspective. Um, I think it was a combination, I, I, to be honest, and not trying to sound egotistical, it was more of a blow to me um, in regard to losing my job. Because again, that was who I was, who I am. Yeah. And uh, I felt that anything um, that I would have to come overcome physically I would be able to overcome physically because I'd done it. I was born three months premature. Okay. And I was born back in a decade that um, very few premature babies survived. Mm-hmm. I won't tell you the exact decade, but we'll just say that that decade, <laughs> <laughs> one of those decades, um, wherever, well, I'm proud of where I'm at. I mean, I'm, I'm 63 years old this October 
And, uh, you know, and I'm proud of being where I'm at because the, the alternative would have been significantly different and could have been different. So um, I'd overcome a lot of things in my life where I felt that the physical and mental aspect of what I'd been told we could manage and overcome from that perspective. But yeah. never being able to work in law enforcement again was something that was final. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was final. My journey with my health is something that I can manage. I had control over to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. My journey with law enforcement was not my choice any longer. Sure. Yeah. So, and so it was such that. a significant part of your identity. Exactly. Everybody that knew me from the time I was 15 years old saying I wanted to be a cop. Yeah. All my friends, my high school friends, everybody knew that that's that's what i was going to, you know when i went when i was in college i went to work i worked in a couple of restaurants you know it's like everybody started as a 15 year old i worked in an italian restaurant learning i was a bus boy to a dishwasher you know uh, to a to a, a prep cook to a, making pizzas and yeah. um it, it's kind of and i went to a steak restaurant you know i worked in these restaurant environments as i was going to college and uh, they all knew that my intention Nobody understood why, but my intention <laughs> was to become a cop. Yeah. And uh, so my whole life from time 15 years old on up, yeah, that's yeah. what I was known for and known as. So yes, it was a significant impact in my life when I was told that you can no longer do this. Um, Would you compare it to a like the sense of loss that someone might experience if, if they were going through a grieving process? Absolutely. I can tell you, in fact, the, the guys in, <laughs> I can tell you that the majority of the law enforcement community within the Colorado Springs area were, were kind of going, I, I would, we'd be driving someplace and something had happened and I'd make the phone call and pretty soon they started going, Sarge, you're making more arrests now than you were when you were on shift. <laughs> <laughs> They're going, relax, just take a breath. <laughs> Just enjoy what you have with your family. Yeah. Stop, you know, just, we got this. We got your back. We got you covered. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, and then I, I grieved over that for quite some time. I was angry. It was resentment. And then I ended up in a wheelchair. I, I will say that I did end up in a wheelchair because the, the type of disease that I had moved at an immense amount of speed. Right. And it took over. I I've got uh, some specialists that I ran into down here in Phoenix it actually mm -hmm. helped me to get a handle on it because of the nature of it. That's a whole different conversation. Um, but it, I went through through the anger and depression in the the, uh, the the typical with we everybody. And I know that it people would relate to the five you know steps of grieving process only because it's been put out there that way. I know the intention of that was not necessarily for this in particular, or for losing somebody. It was meant for a different reason. But as everybody relates to that, yes, I went through that. I went through a grieving process. I went through anger. I went through resentment. I think I went through more anger and resentment than anything else. Then I went through acceptance. And then I went back to resentment. Because it's like, oh, well, especially every time one of my guys that either worked under me or beside me moved up the line. And I was not resenting the fact that they, that they were able to achieve, to be clear. Because I, I am proud of them because yeah. it, they worked for me 
or they worked yeah. beside me and I, I helped them to understand how to be a better cop when I was a supervisor to them. But I was resentful for the fact that this was taken away from me, not by choice. Yeah. So that then made me angry and I had to go through that for a couple of years, you know, and then when I ended up in the wheelchair, um, that was a whole new level of, of going through the grieving process in regard to that, you know, that I cannot believe this took place. And um, so, yes, it was very difficult. I had to go through that process a couple of different times, actually. Knowing myself as I do, um, I know that when I get angry and resentful, I can be quite vindictive and I'm not afraid to admit it. Um, so <laughs> I'm just wondering for you, had I been in your circumstances or, or been through something similar to what you went through, I'd have been really pissed off at the guy that hit me with the car. I'd have, I, I think he, if, even if I couldn't get my hands on him, <laughs> which would have been un, unlikely, um, yes. I would have had a great deal of interest in what happened next in his life. Did you have you, any of that kind of stuff going on? Yes, I will tell you that in um, Colorado, at least, when you have a situation where you have an incident that like what took place there, because he was charged with a multitude of uh, charges, first attempting uh, attempted murder of a police officer, which, you know, it, the plea bargaining in this country is just um, something to be desired. Uh, it needs to change. But he was originally uh, charged with that. Um, and then uh, a whole multitude of, he was under the influence of drugs and alcohol and you know, a whole slew of things. So um, he was looking at a substantial number of years anyway in regard to that because he had felony eluding, he had damage to government property because he damaged the patrol car, he had attempted murder on a police officer, which it got, it got kind of, he had, he had parents that had money. So um, not to sound that side of it, but yeah. they paid for a good lawyer. Uh, so it was, it was knocked down to first degree assault on a police officer, which is uh, the higher level of assault, felony assault, instead of attempted murder. Um, okay. And then he showed the drug charges that were that stuck with him because he had like four different drugs in his system as well as alcohol, uh -huh. uh, and they blamed it all on that that he really didn't know what he was doing. Right. And, you know, he didn't have cognitive effect. Well, I looked at it from a different point of view and mm -hmm. he knew exactly what he was doing and um so knowing that and in knowing that while he was out on bond he assaulted his next door neighbor by dropping a, about a 15 pound rock on the guy's head um it kind of compounded that because that again is another first degree assault yeah. and uh it gave him i think close to 20 years in prison okay okay somewhere you know just maybe short of that yeah uh between my charges and uh this other individual the neighbor's charges okay uh, they finally said well there's really something wrong with this guy and and that he yeah. needs to be held accountable for all of these actions so from that perspective that gave me some satisfaction but that still yeah. didn't you know negate the fact that i was very very angry at this individual and yeah. you know if you want all honesty i can say this now but in all honesty uh i would rather have been uh I'm probably going to get in trouble for this. I would rather have waited for him to be released and, you know, taking him out back. <laughs> to say, look what you took away from me. <laughs> yeah. So is he um, I mean, still um, serving his time now? No, he's been released. 
So, uh, you know, it's kind of one of these things that um, uh, when we get done with the conversation, I'll give you a, a more in-depth uh, um, answer to that question. But uh, in reality, I think that he wouldn't have done very well in prison anyway. So I think that the time that he did in prison was probably very hard on him anyway. So I have that satisfaction in knowing as well. And yeah. in reality, you know, I, I still overcame. And uh, no matter what, and the fact that you did what you did, I yeah. overcame. I did not succumb to it. I did not sit in a wheelchair and wallow in my mm -hmm. pity and sorrow uh, and my anger and my resentment. I worked through it and uh, yeah. I was able to move forward in a very positive way and find a new way for giving back to life and giving uh, purpose to my life and to be able to help other people move forward in a positive way. So there must have been a point when your, for want of a better word, your own attitude to your circumstances changed, where you came through the grieving process or were able to use whatever fuel that gave you in from the anger and, and resentment that was there. Sometimes you can use that in a positive way because there's lots of energy in it. Um, something happened that had you think, you know what? That's enough now. I need to start moving forward. So how did you, know, you get there? I'm going to say that I, I have to give credit to my family, my whole family, my wife and both my daughters and my sister and my brother-in-law. Um, I have to give credit to all of them first and foremost. But the theoretical kick in the pants was when my oldest daughter, she was going to get married and um, we were having the wedding in Las Vegas. And uh, I said, uh, as I know that we're paying for your wedding and uh, so forth, but uh, I took her aside. Yeah. And uh, this may bring tears to my eyes because it always does. So we have okay. to Photoshop Welcome those up. out, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, I said, what do you want for a wedding gift? And she said, uh, I want you to walk me down the aisle. Mm -hmm. And I said, but, and she said, looked me square in the eyes and she said don't you guys have a saying as in cops never say die mm -hmm. and i said yeah we do have a saying never say die and she says i want you to walk me down the aisle mm -hmm. so that was kind of my kick in the pants and you know i thought you know i'm i'm tired of sitting here i'm tired i was i went from 100 when i was a cop i weighed about 180 pounds mm -hmm. All muscle, of course. Yes. Um, the uh, or muscle stored for later use in certain areas. <laughs> <That's what> <laughs> <laughs> um, I went from that uh, down to a hundred pounds in my journey, and uh, it was very difficult for me to kind of um, think that I wouldn't be anywhere else at mm -hmm. some point at that time until my daughter pushed me yeah. in that direction. So at that point, I found a surgeon down here, and uh, I took a proactive approach to uh, accomplishing that. And I went to see a brilliant surgeon, Dr. Robert Berghoff, and um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying his name, in the Phoenix, Arizona area. And uh, I explained my circumstance. I went in there with my daughter and my wife, and I said, uh, I want to walk her down the aisle. And he says, I can help you do that. Amazing. What, what was that like? When I've had situations not as um, drastic, perhaps, but similar, where 
you know, your something about your health is out of your control and mm -hmm. you are putting your faith in these gods that we call doctors. <clears throat> and every now and again, you get a really good one who says, I can do that. And then they do it. And it's like your whole world changes. Whole world changed, changed my life. My quality of life started to improve, you know, immensely. Uh, between that, the cardiologist that I found to help me, because I had to get cleared through cardiology and I, you know, a bunch of other things. Um, it was a team effort. I, I yeah. will tell you, it was a team effort. Uh, Dr. Doss is one of the premier cardiologists down here. I don't have heart issues, but because I needed to do a stress test and there's a whole slew of stuff that had to be done. And okay. um, with that understanding that I couldn't go on a treadmill to do a stress test, they had other ways of doing things and trying to get me cleared within a specific amount of time. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Doss said, yeah, I'm part of this team and let's, you know, let's move it forward. So between the, you know, the surgeon, the Dr. Doss, my personal physician, uh, Dr. Stephen Fry, who he helped me to uh, better manage my, rheumatoid arthritis okay. and then believe it or not an oncologist um hematologist uh, yeah. dr volk this team of individuals were able to get me uh into such a point to that uh, i was able to have uh, the surgery done and yeah. have it done within an effective time to get me on the road to recovery very quickly i okay. am grateful a hundred times a thousand times over because from that perspective, it changed my life in a very distinctive way that allowed me to move my life forward and therefore my daughter's life forward and my wife and my other daughter as well. Because obviously, you know, it's not my sister beat cancer twice and yeah. we went through her victory lap. My youngest daughter pushed me around the track that they walked in a wheelchair next to my sister. Um. Forgive me. Forgiven. So this team of individuals made a significant impact in my life, in my quality of life, not just teams, but those around me. <clears throat> it was a game changer, complete game changer for you. It was, and I will tell you, there's a lot of work um, yeah. uh, between everything and then physical rehabilitation. I I will tell you that uh, once the fire was ignited in me again and my, my daughter reminded me and then my other daughter continued to remind me and my wife continued to remind me. They were on you. <laughs> yes, that um, I have the ability and the opportunity to overcome what I needed mm -hmm. to overcome. So... I literally was walking the same day, my first surgery on the knee, and uh, wow. I recovered from that. Uh, I actually recovered from that five weeks early. Yeah. And I was walking, um, yeah. still with a limp, because my other yeah. knee needed to be done as well, and my yeah. hip needed to be done. But uh, it allowed me to walk my daughter down the aisle. Yeah. And uh, when that was accomplished and we got that taken care of, then I went back and had started having another series of operations and uh, it, each one of them, uh, 
I had to reach deep down, deep down inside myself and say to, you know, uh, this is obviously in no detriment to anybody that's sitting in a wheelchair at this moment. I can tell you that you have the opportunity to make changes in your life in a positive way. If you find the right people, the right team, the right motivation, that it may be small steps in the beginning, but it can lead to big steps throughout your life. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I went on to have uh, a total of, I've had a total of eight operations. Uh, I've had two shoulder replacements. I've had a hip replacement, two knee replacements, a foot replacement, and then two surgeries on my eyes. Um, the surgeries on my eyes are just part of the disease okay. that I've got as well. Um, my wheelchair is sitting in the garage collecting dust. And uh, I have enjoyed my life with my family and my kids. And I was able to take um, that momentum, that motivation, that inspiration from every one of those individuals, including each and every one of the doctors, uh, including the, the last one that did my shoulder replacements. I have implemented, they've rebuilt my shoulder in both shoulders uh, wow. with something that, that I was the only one that had it for the last year. Uh, wow. I was the guinea pig for it. And uh, it, uh, it was manufactured actually in Britain and in France. A portion of it was in Britain. A portion of it was in France. Uh, so thank you, Britain. I appreciate well, that. <laughs> the <whole country. laughs> um, the, uh, 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 that's, uh, Dr. Sheldon Martin uh, is also part of that team. And, uh, you know, they gave me back a quality of life that allowed me to move forward in life. And I just had to make that choice. Yeah, I had to make yeah. that decision because I literally could have um, stayed at 100 pounds. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Volk was ready to put me in the hospital uh, yeah. because of that. I had allergic reactions to certain medications that I was on and nobody was recognizing it as part of that journey as well. I could have yeah. given up completely. Um, mm -hmm. Not saying that I... I hadn't thought about it, you know, because when you get down to that point where you're a burden, you feel that you're a burden on others around you. Yep. Um, it becomes to a point where you kind of go, well, maybe I need to remove that burden from other individuals. Um, and that's being honest. Yeah. You know, you, you, if anybody out there that is watching this or listening to this, are in that same situation, I, I need to put this forth to you that you just need to look around you, open your eyes and see who's in your environment and just ask. You have to be able to be humble enough to just ask. If they weren't there, if you felt that you were being a burden, if you felt that they, they didn't want to be part of your life because of what you were going through, you need to look beside you, look behind you, look in front of you and see who is there because they're there for a reason. Yeah. And just ask. Um, if they can help you, they will. Yeah. And if they can't, maybe they'll help you find somebody that will help you. Yeah. So it's... Did you ask or was it your the intuition of your family and their observations of you that made them push you in the way that they did? It's a combination of both. Okay. You know, because, you know, it, it's, and again, I'm going to speak very openly and honestly here. It's, I went from an individual that had a team of 13 that I managed and people looked up to, that I 
by when everybody was running away, we were running too. Yeah. I've had guns pulled on me, knives pulled on me. I've been in fights where I thought I was going to lose. Mm -hmm. um, I, I got hit by a car uh, three times, actually. If you count the two times before that, I was hit by a vehicle. One of them in the middle of a bank robbery with my gun out in the middle of the street with somebody gawking at the bank robbery and not wow. realizing they hit the cop that was standing. <laughs> I have to laugh about that one because it, it was... <laughs> He's going, oh my gosh, I just had a cop. It's like, did you not look around? <laughs> um, the, uh, we, when you you go from that environment to having to ask your wife to take you to the toilet, mm -hmm. it is a very humbling. Yeah, very sobering. Sobering, a great word, situation. So when we got married, I promised my wife that I would love and hold her and take care of her in sickness and in health, and yeah. that I would provide for her, and that uh, you know, and uh, that was all taken away. Mm. And I had to ask. I have to. But go she also room. made that promise to you, though, didn't she? She did. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she's been. She has stuck to that through again 33 years i'm very grateful for that because a lot of people would not have mm -hmm. a lot of people would not have been there each and every time that i opened my eyes from the surgery she wouldn't have been there each and every time i was working through rehabilitation physical rehabilitation that was difficult and hard where i had to you know i was i had to walk and she had to walk with me i had to yeah. walk with a with a uh, a huge walker that that yeah. um, my elbows fit into, and I'd hold on to, and I had to do okay. these walks every hour. And yeah, because I was wondering, you know, what you left the police force. What that suddenly did your days look like? And then you must have had almost a different daily routine immediately after the accident to what it looked like after the operation. So you, you've gone through almost a whole other career or at least a, a whole different daily routine throughout that period as well i did um after i got injured i went on light duty what they call light duty and i was at a desk for a long time before i started seeing doctors um, that was in an effect to keep me employed and keep me you know yeah. we weren't sure what the ultimate uh diagnosis was going okay. to be we had no clue until you go through a series of doctors and uh so i went on light duty everybody was very supportive in fact when i ran out of sick time um, I had other officers and uh, other city personnel and firefighters that donated sick time to keep me because oh. I also was in combination with um, yeah. workman's compensation. Okay. And um, so, you know, which I'm very grateful for every one of those individuals because yeah. they donated sick time to me to keep me with a full paycheck. Yeah. So it um, nice. afterwards, like I said, I wallowed in my pity and sorrow for a while and so forth, people, you know, I had cops that stopped by all the time to make sure I was doing all right and things like that and trying to keep me motivated. I had uh, friends and colleagues that say, hey, let's go to lunch and, you yeah. know, to keep me busy and things like that. Um, I made a lot of phone calls about, hey, this guy's doing this wrong. You should come get him. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's not the Snoopy kind, not the one that peeked out the window, you know, with a pair of binoculars looking around. <laughs> um, Did you have a police radio that you were just listening in on <laughs> making sure that they were going to respond to the sergeants uh, <laughs> retired sergeants 
uh, <laughs> come take care of this now. <laughs> um, yes, my our routine kind of changed dramatically, and uh, I went. Uh, I became the my wife became the maid breadwinner, and I became the house husband, the uh, how the the home father. So, right. you know, we reversed roles basically. Uh, yeah. uh, don't you know the only thing. I did not dress that way, but, um, you know, I didn't wear an apron and so yeah. forth. But I was the uh, essential, quintessential house husband. Uh, okay. and the, uh, the, you know, I took my kids back and forth to school and, um, you know, we kind of, we, we did that. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, okay. the, the whole role change, the, the roles changed. Yeah, yeah. So your um, physio that you went through, got you to the point where you were able to walk your daughter down the aisle. What was that bit like? I, I will tell you, you're just trying to make me cry, aren't you? I'm sorry, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> um, it, I mean, they're good tears. So even if they do come, they're good tears because in reality, you know, if a, I, I can't say that I would not have been motivated after that. I'm sure I would have because my kids, my daughters, my wife, my my sister, my brother, they all motivated me. Um, my do oldest daughter just gave me the ultimate motivation to say, look, I, I'm going to give you something to work for kind of a thing. So when we, the pictures that we have of us walking down the aisle are her favorite wedding pictures yeah it you know everybody was on their feet obviously for caitlin and that was the yeah. the the whole scope of it was being there for her sure. but i also had um you know people that i work with that were part of the wedding and part you know there as, as guests and so forth that that knew the journey that I had been through as well. And I could see and know that their joy was not only for Caitlin, but was for me as well. In regard to being the father that I wanted to be for my daughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that must have been a very special moment. It was. As you can see, I still get emotional with it. Yeah. Um, it was the a catalyst mm -hmm. into moving me forward into my my next chapter in life. Yeah, actually. So, tell me about that. What was the next chapter? You know, I I once I get we kind of got squared away. I decided to go back to a university, and uh, once I was you know able to function back in society again, so to speak, and I put weight back on and I was feeling much more healthier. I um, went back to university and uh, went back to my first love. Well, I can't say my first love. When I grew up as a kid, okay, movies, my escape were movies. Right. Right. And then it's because of my dysfunctional family, because of the fighting and the infighting and the alcoholism yeah. and the all that domestic issues, yeah. my escape was going to the movies because when you go to the movies, you can forget You're about in all of that. Yeah. Exactly. You get involved in that. You get immersed. You get, yeah. you know, you could become that. You can get so that was my thing. So, you know, I I had I knew that at 15 I really wanted to be a cop because at, at that time, that's when 
so many things had come together that said, this is what I want to do because I want to help people. Yeah. But deep down inside, I still loved movies. Yeah. So I um, went back to school and I got uh, a master's degree in interdisciplinary studies with a focus on digital media and performance and uh, fine-tuned and honed some digital media to become yeah. a filmmaker and shoot a documentary. And um, I implemented, uh, and this all fits into what's going on. Uh -huh. I, um, at the time I needed to do my uh, thesis, my capstone thesis project for, to get my master's. And um, it, I decided to do a, um, a documentary film. And uh, I thought back on my whole career and I thought back on my personal life and I thought, what is going to be a really good opportunity uh, for me to utilize everything that I've learned in my experiences to make this documentary something very impactful. Yeah. So I thought about it and uh, every person's hand that I'd held before they died and they said, can you please tell my wife, I love them, my husband, I love them, yeah. my kids, I love them, I'm proud of them. Every door I knocked on when I had to deliver news, said somebody wasn't coming home, and they said, I didn't get to say I love you. I didn't get to say what I wanted to say. The last thing I said, I was angry, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. And I thought about all that. And I thought about the fact that I didn't get to say goodbye to my father. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to say goodbye to my mother. They, my father died. I got a phone call. My mother died. Uh, I got a phone call. Yeah. Um, I'm going to make a, an impact on certain aspects. And I'm going to combine it with what helped me get through all of my surgeries, all of my issues, um, because I, you asked me what I did in changing my lifestyle. I, I have a collection of probably 2000 movies and TV programs. Right. That's what I did. Yeah. And I thought one more, one more thing before you go. Yeah. And I did a documentary short documentary called One More Thing Before You Go. And what we did was take a, a, a bunch of people's stories, several people's stories. We went through them and we picked out specifics where somebody didn't get the opportunity to say what they wanted to say before losing someone, do what they wanted to do before um, life changed in an instant for whatever reason, and use that in combination with creative arts. And we utilized dance, music, um, drama art and then we took each one of those and we recreated that situation so that person had the opportunity to do what they get the last dance wow amazing to enjoy the music to yeah do do a painting that would specify this is what i see now or what i'm missing yeah. so that you combine creative arts and healing the opportunity to say what you didn't get to say and created one more thing before you go documentary. Do you know what's interesting about the, the two lives that you've had <laughs> um, in your first life where right. you were working in law enforcement, your driver, I think, for getting into that was what we would in in nlp terms we would call it an away from which means that you're compelled you're motivated by not being like that i don't want to be like them 
I don't want that life, yeah. not that. So it's like I'm seeing this dysfunctional family or I'm seeing these um, experiences in my life. I want to do the opposite to that. I'm going this way. And the thing with an away from motivator is it's really, really powerful. You know, it really puts rocket fuel up your backside. With your, your movies and your documentary filmmaking, um, that's more of a towards. It's what, like, there's just good things. There's just right. good reasons for going there. Um, and it's a different sort of uh, motivation. It has a different type of power to it. When you're doing something because it's, actually, I really like that. That's something I'd really like to do. Mm -hmm. It's really, it comes from a really different place than when it's, um, I need to do this because I don't want that. It's like, a, it's a, does this make sense to you, what I'm saying? Absolutely makes sense to me. You know, it, it is one of them I enjoy doing. I love my job as a cop. I, I need to say that out loud. I really did yeah, enjoy yeah. what I did. I enjoyed being interactive with people. I did walkabouts. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, Steve, the guy I talked to earlier about that I uh, was a partner with, Yes. And he went on to be a police chief here from yeah. your neck of the woods. Yeah. Um, we would park the car and we would walk downtown and sit on the benches and talk to people and knock on the doors and go in the shops and things like that. I love my job. Yeah. But I agree. When I really look deep down inside, I'm a creator. I yeah. love to create. It brings me a whole new sense of perspective on life when I can create something yeah. that others can enjoy and others can resonate with and i can tell stories with that do the same thing when i was a cop and helping people but in a different way yeah, yeah so yeah. yes absolutely 100 percent. and even in doing the documentary i i started with the documentary because they didn't want you it, it wasn't a film school mm -hmm. so big so you know they wanted you to create something that that um the documentary fit yeah. within that realm basically because i was doing the creative arts healing study there i was doing dance study i studied theater i studied shakespeare i studied you know filmmaking i studied digital aspects of filmmaking and digital audio and all everything they wanted you yeah. to combine something together with all of that so that the documentary fit but my goal was to, to come out of this and say hey, i want to make film i want to do film but the, yeah. then my, my life took a little bit of a turn for the worse then I had some allergic reaction to some medication, right. and um, I really took a downturn. It about killed me, and literally. Um, that's where the oncologist really came involved because he said, you're going to get off this medication it, or it's going to kill you, period. So my, that, that was cut short as well. I wasn't able to continue with that. And that's right. what brought me to my... Once I got over that, we were overcoming it. Once we became, we understood it, we dealt with it, we managed it. It brought me back to a healthy perspective. Um, I said, what am I going to do now? You know, because I lost my momentum in making film. I really was on yeah. track. I was moving forward. I was making connections. And uh, my oldest daughter, again, I have to thank Caitlin. Uh, she <laughs> we, like Caitlin. we like Caitlin. We like Caitlin. She whispered in my ear. She said, you know, have you ever thought about, have you ever heard of a podcast? <laughs> and, and I said, um, no. And she said, here, listen to these. And she said, I think you would be 
really good at this. And I think you really need to invest uh, in maybe starting a podcast and yeah. talk about everything and talk about your experience and talk about this, talk about that. And I said, what am I going to do with it? And she said, you have a documentary that has a basis for it. Yeah. And that's where One More Thing Before You Go came from. And uh, she said, uh, really explore it. Take your time. Yeah. So I did. I took my, my master's degree and I used my research. I'm yep. using all these little keywords <laughs> <laughs> that they kept pushing into your head while you're in university. Yes, <laughs> I used my research skills and uh, I, I said, yeah, I think I really want to do this. And, uh, you know, I listened to a bunch of podcasts and I really thought, you know, I, I think I like this. Some of them, you know, as we know, some of them you kind of go, no, that's not for me. Other ones were kind of going, yeah, this is great. And I can combine now that we've got video. We can combine mm -hmm. the digital aspect of it yes. and create a talk show instead of just a podcast as like what we're doing right now. Yeah, and it cre I'm creating again. And that creating inspired and lit another fire in me that allowed me to really think about it. And that's, that's where, again, one more thing before you go podcast yeah. and the book that I'm about to write or that I am writing um, came about. And it's podcasting and finding purpose. Podcasting with a purpose is the book that, uh, that I'm in the middle of writing at the moment. And it's 10 steps to connect, engage, and grow your audience. And um, I'm taking everything that I've learned and I'm taking the creative aspects that I've missed and uh, I put it into reinventing my purpose. So now yes. that I'm able to take, the, as you know, the part of the platform of One More Thing Before You Go podcast, especially in the beginning, and it's evolved since the beginning, just like everything. You know, you've got to grow and evolve and, you know, niche your audience down and make sure that you give your audience what you're looking for. But I was able to tell stories of from people who didn't get to say what they what they wanted to say to somebody that they lost. I was able to get that, say, you know, bring people on the program that said, um, yes, there's a possibility that whether you believe in the paranormal supernatural, whether you believe in the other side, um, this is an opportunity. Here's some options for you that to understand that even though you didn't get to say goodbye, you didn't get to say, I love you. I'm proud of you. I miss you yeah. that you still can, but you can do it in a different way. Yeah. So we yeah. went to a multitude of, of perspectives so that we tried to give everybody the opportunity to understand grieving. How yes. to get through grief. I understand yeah. that it's okay to be to grieve and to be angry, to be resentful. It's okay to um to to uh, cry. It's okay to um, be humble. It's okay to ask for help. We we told stories of we do not just told, but we tell stories of individuals that um um loving someone who's dying, mm -hmm. marrying your high school sweetheart, knowing she's got a disease that's going to kill her, yeah. but you still marry her. And you still try to make the best of life and you're with her through that journey. Yeah. We share stories like that. And that made me, it gave me new purpose. It said, yeah. I, I, although I loved my chapter in life when I was a law enforcement officer, I gave what I could in within that. I have a new opportunity, a new chapter in my life that I was able to reinvent my purpose. Yeah. And I yeah. reinvented my purpose in, in, in such a way that I can use digital media and mass communication in order to affect people from all over the world, 100%. not just in my environment as a cop, yeah. you know, within the state of Colorado, 
city of Colorado Springs, you know, break it down. Yeah. I was able to contact and help people from all over the world and give them opportunity to say what they want to say, give them the opportunity to air it out, to talk about it. You know, I have I've brought people on that have said, I've never said that anywhere. And I was able yeah. to say it on this program um, and give them the opportunity to say, hey, maybe there is something on the other side. But I have something to look forward to. I have something to be hopeful for yes. and, and things like this. So it gave me the opportunity to reevaluate myself and reinvent myself into a new purpose. And And I say that because I was told by five doctors mm -hmm. that I would be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life eventually in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Yeah. I spent four years in a wheelchair before I realized that I don't need to be here. And that was through the motivation of my daughters, my wife, my family, my colleagues, uh, fantastic doctors, each and every one of them I love, mm -hmm. who said that you can do this. You have to have the mindset. You need to yeah. connect your mind, your body, and your soul to yeah. bring this all together in order to say yes, I can accomplish this. Yes, I can move forward. Yeah. Yes, there are circumstances that cannot be changed. But that doesn't mean that you still cannot take that opportunity to reinvent your life and move your purpose in another way. Motivate people, inspire people, educate people. If you if you do have a disease, which I've had people on my program that have a disease that is not curable, yeah. it is not going to go away. But they come on the program to say, just because they tell you you have five months to live, I'm here five years later. Yeah, yeah. That's and you need, to, you need to connect your mind, your body, and your soul. You need to connect with yourself and say, I am important. I am worthy. And that yeah. I belong to this universe and to people yeah. around me enough that I can move myself forward in a positive way and help others to do the same thing, even though I am in this situation. Yeah. You know, um, there's so much crossover in what you have um, allowed people to express on your show and really what I would call the borrowing benefits that I've had from speaking to the people that have come on my show. Right. Um, I don't know how much my show is of value to other people, but it's immensely valuable to me. Well, <laughs> and it, I... I've yes. got so much from, you know, the conversations and, and yourself mm -hmm. included, you know, without question from talking to you today, there, there are things that I will recall months later. And I think, wow, I got that. I got that wisdom from Ashley Braxton. That was Sarah M just yeah. gave me that inspiration, you know, and then I'll recall these conversations that I've had with people. And I, I think that um, there is something really potent about speaking to what are otherwise considered just ordinary everyday people, right. um, you know, because I'm no Joe Rogan uh, or Oprah Winfrey, you know, this, this is not some um, high class talk show, uh, but the, the value in what these people share and and what they offer for our audiences um, is not just super humbling, but it reminds me that I almost feel like I have a responsibility to fight for my place on this planet. You know, if something goes wrong, if the odds are not in my favor, 
I'll give myself a window of opportunity to skulk around and, you know, poor me for a little while. But it's a window of opportunity. We're not hanging around there too long because I almost can't justify it when I hear stories such as yours where you have worked so hard to come out the other side um, bigger, better, brighter, and still offering something back to the world. Uh, who am I to sulk about the bad day that I'm having? I, and I, I 100% agree with you with everything you, you just said. It is a situation that each one of us, you know, our, we all have journeys in life, mm -hmm. as we know, and each, our, each of our journeys may be similar in nature, but we're all the same. We all yeah. still have to think about what step we're taking, that first step to move forward. Because if you don't take that first step, you're never going to move anywhere. Yeah, yeah. If you don't take that first step. And in reality, we're allowed to be angry for a little bit. We're allowed to be resentful for a little bit. Like you said yeah. earlier about skulking around, just, you know, yeah. we're allowed. We can do that because we're human beings and we have the opportunity to say, Yes, I can feel sorry for myself for just a little bit. Yes, I, but pull your boots up, you know, <laughs> yeah. pull yeah. your pants up and, yeah. and, you know, tighten your belt and, you know, understand that you have something to offer to other people. You have something to offer to this world that is a benefit, mm -hmm. even, even if you're in a negative situation, because if you have worked through a negative situation, you have worked through obstacles in your life because life always has obstacles, no matter what. Yeah. Life has obstacles. It can be, I don't want to get up this morning. I didn't get enough sleep last night. We all have to overcome that. But when you look around you, there are so many other people out there that are going through journeys that are very, very similar to yours, or if not the same, yeah. and that we're all in this together, and yeah. we need to move forward. Mm -hmm. And in reality, life can change in an instant. Yes. Yeah. If we remember that life can change in an instant, I can tell you that. From personal experience, it can yep. change in an instant. Personal and professional experience. Mm -hmm. That is up to us individually to take that first step and to move forward. Yep. It's up to us to recognize that we just need to look around ourselves and see what we have, be grateful for where we are in life, what we have in this life, and grateful for the people and those, those individuals that are around us that we just need to extend a hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and if you're on the other side of it, I'll make this quick because I know we, I know we're running long. That's all right. No, we're good. Don't worry. The other option is if you are looking from the outside in and you see this individual that is struggling, you see this individual that doesn't want to, I want to tell you how hard it was for me the first time I had to ask my wife to walk me to the toilet. Mm. I emphasize that just because that's a necessity in life. Yeah. And, and I was afraid to ask my wife to say please yeah you need to you need to look for those individuals that you can tell they're seeking help you can see it in their eyes yeah. you can see it in their face you can see it on their heart and reach out and extend a hand yeah 100% i'm curious and and also would like you to uh share with our audience here there have obviously been some um, interviews that you've done on your show 
where you have had some profound conversations, you know, people that maybe really made an impression on you. What are what are your what have been your highlights from doing what you do now? If if people wanted to go off and listen to one more thing before you go, what's the what's the episode that you would say they have to listen to this one? This conversation blew my mind. Well, see, oh, that's difficult. Um, I say it's difficult because I'm at like 220 episodes. Okay. So, and I have a lot of favorites within that. Yeah. Um, I would say if you really want to understand the value of life and understand what it means to love someone uh, without fail, Mm -hmm. uh, loving someone who's dying. And I do not know the episode number. Please forgive me. Like I said, I'm over 200. Yeah. Um, Loving someone who's dying. Profound conversation. This individual, uh, his journey, um, he ended up with uh, uh, problems on his own, uh, health-wise, I have yeah. a fly that will not leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need friends, but not that one. Um, <laughs> I would say that one would be one at the top of my list in regard to uh, overcoming and regard to loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did one recently with uh, Seth Dietlin. Um, he talks about uh, angels and his journey with angels. If it's all possible, I would love to be able to send you some recommendations if you don't mind you putting them in do. the show notes. And yeah, and I will put them in the description notes for the show for sure. That, yeah, that would definitely. be great because, like I said, I, I've got, I mean, there's any number of ones, but I, it, it's very difficult. I, I've, I've talked to one woman who uh, her life purpose now is to, she she had a journey where she was literally, um, when you talk about uh, dysfunctional family, uh, she was raped when she was five years old, and oh. uh, that continued until she into her t- like twenty six years old. She had been oh, through numerous uh, domestic violence situations in regard to that environment, drug, alcohol abuse, everything, and uh, she came out on top to create a foundation to help other women work through that in a safe haven for them, so yeah. that they have a place that they can go to, and a place okay. that they can um, know that they've got others around them uh warriors helping warriors um that's another one that uh this individual the they were first responders themselves uh, uh one of the, the guy that runs it mainly is a uh um soldier and uh he suffered ptsd from his uh, afghanistan days and okay. his uh, wife uh, was a first responder a police officer and they created a uh unique uh facility that people can travel to, um, and you can, even if you don't have the money, that if you're, there are too many law enforcement officers and firefighters that commit suicide every year that do not make the news. Yeah. Because they just can't handle it anymore. They yeah. give this facility as an opportunity for anybody within the EMS, soldiers and firefighters and cops and you know, whole bit, that they have a safe haven they can come and talk and discuss with people. I mean, there's just so many. I, I, yeah. If you'll please give me the honor of just being able to give you some recommendations today. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, thank you. Um, is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that you think might be useful or important to add? Life can change in an instant. Take the time to stop and smell the roses, as the old cliche says. 
look around you, see who loves you. Uh, take the time to say what you wanted to say. Yep. Do what you want to do, because uh, you may not always have that opportunity to do or say what you wanted to say before losing someone. Yeah. So one more thing before you go, take the time. Yeah. Michael, it has been an absolute joy and a pleasure to speak with you this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time today. I, it's been an honor being on your program. Thank you very much for allowing me to uh, share my journey and my story. And uh, I look forward to uh, hopefully inspiring and educating and motivating people down the road. And don't forget to watch for one more thing before you go. We most certainly will. Okay, so what did you think about Michael? He's basically a bionic man now after all of those joint replacements and operations that that guy has been through. I love what he said around going through all of those experiences, deciding to give up the wheelchair, deciding to put in the physio work. He said that he rejected the option to give up. And I really like that because it's almost as if, well, of course there is the option to give up. Of course it's it's one of the cards on the table, that just happened to be the one that he rejected. So yeah, I think that's a really nice way of phrasing and expressing the idea of giving up when it's not what you want to do, is that you reject that option. I think overall, as with many of these podcasts, I found this one incredibly humbling. Um I love what he said around looking in every direction to see who is there and ask for help. And I think that that's something, particularly for British people, I think that's something we really struggle to do. But look around in every direction and see who is there and ask for the help. And I really love that um, Michael's family was such a rock for him throughout all of those circumstances that he went through in his recovery because he said something about how he had to ask his wife to help him go to the bathroom. He mentioned that a couple of times and how she hadn't signed up for that. And yet he simultaneously said, you know, I agreed to stick with her through sickness and in health. And it was like, yeah, she agreed to that too. <laughs> That's why she did those things for you. And I think that he's been incredibly blessed to have such a motivating but also real strong foundation of a family there to support him and I suspect that he already knew that but now he knows it in a whole other way he knows this on a whole other level now and sometimes that's you know what life throws at you is that you you really bond in a different way when you go through traumatic experiences with the people around you we had a nice conversation about metaprograms in there. So his previous job in law enforcement was very much driven by things that he wanted to move away from. His new career, which is more artistic, more creative, is all about stuff that he enjoys that he wants to move towards. Now, there's a lot of uh, people that would say, especially in the NLP world, that your goals should all be towards because it's more positive and 
moving away from stuff definitely creates some stress and so it can use up extra energy so there is a downside to that naturally I'm more of an away from person wouldn't you know it um, and so I'm more motivated by the stick than the carrot and I suspect I'm not alone in that in fact comment if you if you're the same as me let me know um, the best combination is probably a little bit of both so if you are setting goals right now particularly with new year coming up don't just think about what you're getting away from and don't just think about what it is that you want to move towards have a balance there because then that way you're using power from both places to move you in the right direction uh what else am i going to say i'm also going to say that along with so many of these shows that i have filmed now this one leaves me with that statement maybe it's an affirmation by now of who am i to complain and i mean that in the sense of these stories that people are sharing with me and i'm so very grateful and humbled that they do share their stories with me really cause me to reevaluate my bad days because when I have a bad day now I ask myself is it really as bad as xyz and I refer back to these shows and so I'm personally finding these conversations to be valuable in that way and I hope that they're valuable in some similar way for you too um what else did I want to say yeah I guess the couple of final things I will leave you with from Michael and from our chat there today is remember that life can change in an instant and to reach out and extend a hand and that may be because you need someone to hold your hand at that point in time but it could also be because there is someone who is close to you there is someone who is within your vicinity who needs that support right now who is not themselves reaching out and asking for the help that they require so be the person who steps up and reaches out a hand and looks in every direction to see who you can support and how but for now thank you all so much for watching and listening to this one I hope that you've really enjoyed it if you did make sure that you give it a thumbs up on YouTube a five star review if you would be so kind on iTunes and I will see all of you for the next show Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. People Building Podcast was produced and edited by Gemma Bailey. You can find out more information about our products and services on peoplebuilding.co.uk where you can also join in the conversation around specific episodes. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. It should not be considered professional advice. Unless specifically stated otherwise, we do not endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information provided
product, process, service or organisation that is presented within the podcast and information from this podcast should not be referenced.